Isaiah chapter 58, and given uh, the time allotted, I'm going to read the passage as we discuss it today. So we're not going to read it all at the beginning, I know that's the tradition, but uh, we will, by the time we've finished, have read all of Isaiah chapter 58, 1 through 14. But before we begin to discuss the text this morning, I want to begin by considering an observation made by Canadian author Donald Kingsbury. And it was in his 1983 novel, Courtship Right, that he wrote this. Kingsbury wrote the following. Tradition is a set of solutions for which we have forgotten the problems. Throw away the solution and you get the problem back. Sometimes the problem has mutated or disappeared. Often it is still there as strong as it ever was. Tradition is a set of solutions for which we have forgotten the problems. That's a thought worth considering, isn't it? Tradition is a set of solutions for which we have forgotten the problems. What Kingsbury has recognized is that the traditions handed down to us from past generations, they often began as solutions to problems they were experiencing in their lives. But successive generations, they adopted the, the routine, the patterns, the liturgies, but often forgot why they were developed to begin with. One of the ways in which God has blessed humanity through the ancient people of Israel is that he commissioned them not only to pass down solutions and preserve them, traditions, laws, guidelines, and all of that, but he also tasked them with preserving illustrations of the problems that those traditions and laws were meant to mitigate. A multitude of social, communal, and personal problems, along with their prescribed solutions, have been preserved for us in what is now called the Christian Bibles. And they've been preserved in the forms of theologically interpreted historical narratives, prophetic oracles, historical records, poetry, apocalypse, epistles, and of course, through explicit instructions. The prophetic oracle we're about to encounter in Isaiah chapter 58 is a fine example of this. In Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 14, the Lord revealed through Isaiah both a series of problems and the solution to those challenges which God had already provided to the people of Israel in the covenant of Sinai through the law of Moses, but which they had decided they didn't need any longer. And since Isaiah began with the problem, so too shall we. The passage begins with the call of God to Isaiah to reveal to Israel the breaches of the covenant that they had made with God at Mount Sinai. So God begins by saying this. This is Isaiah 58, beginning in verse 1. He says to Isaiah, Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Now we might assume, and I think I often do when I read the First Testament, that Isaiah was sent to proclaim information of which the people were well aware. I mean, after all, rebellion is intentional, isn't it? Wesleyans often say that it has to be intentional. If a people are in rebellion against God or against their government, they would know, wouldn't they? Rebels know they're rebels, don't they? But if we were tempted to read the text in that way, then we're proven to be in error by what follows. Apparently, rebellion is not always apparent to those who are rebelling. The indictment of God continues. This is verse 2 of Isaiah 58. 
Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways. It would appear that Israel believed themselves to be in right relationship with God. Is that surprising to you? Even more, some of the behaviors that we would expect to find in people who are in right relationship with God were present among the people of Israel at this time. The text says that they sought after God and that they were delighted to know God's ways. So the people at this time, they were not atheists, they were not agnostics, they truly believed in God and they were seeking after him. Even more, they delighted to know more about God and about what God expected of them. They delighted in that, the text says. I looked up the Hebrew to be sure it was a good translation, and sure enough, they liked it. This is a strange way to begin if the purpose of Isaiah's calling was to announce to the people of Israel that they were in rebellion. Can people who seek after God and delight to know his ways be in rebellion against him? Apparently, the answer to that is yes. Furthermore, the people of Israel at this time appear to have been a people of prayer. The text continues, They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. So not only were the people of Israel at this time seeking God and delighting in the study of his ways, but they were also drawing near to God regularly in prayer and asking God to judge them and their nations with righteousness. I don't know how you're hearing this. But this doesn't sound to me much like a people who are in rebellion against God. God's indictment through Isaiah continues in verse 3. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? This is Israel now speaking to God. He's quoting what they've been saying. So let me get this straight. The people of Israel at this time were seeking after God. They were delighting in study of God's word. They were drawing near to God regularly in prayer and submitting themselves to God's judgment. And they were fasting and worshiping before God regularly. I mean, they appear to be pretty pious people. And yet God sent Isaiah to reveal to them that they were in fact in rebellion against God. Now rebellion would have to be revealed to a people like this. After all, they certainly had a form of godliness. And yet Isaiah reveals that they did all of the things about which we've just read, and this is another quote from Isaiah, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. To say it another way, Israel at this time believed themselves to be in right relationship with God when in fact they were in rebellion against him. What was the problem? What was God's evidence against them? Well, Isaiah has told us in what follows, picking up the text at the end of verse 3. God says to them, Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? 
Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruin shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. So despite seeking after God, despite delighting in the study of God's revelations, despite drawing near to God in prayer, and despite regular gatherings of fasting and worship, Israel was in rebellion against God. How so? Well, you can get caught up in all the illustrations, but did you hear the fundamental accusation? It was there right at the beginning. They were oppressing their workers. All the rest is meant to illustrate how that was happening in Israel. They were oppressing their workers, and this is what is summarized there, by abusing them physically, by denying them justice, by making their period of service permanent, by paying them such low wages that they were without adequate food, shelter, and clothing, and by ignoring the suffering of those who labored in their fields and worked in their houses. Now, it would seem, based on God's promises to Israel in the passage, that Israel justified all of those abuses as the cost of doing business. They appear to have been exploiting laborers and workers in this way in order to sustain the prosperity of their nation. And so God revealed to them that if they would behave towards their laborers in the way required by the covenant of Sinai, God himself would step in and ensure that they would be prosperous, even in spite of the greater cost and sacrifice that justice, mercy, and generosity might require. So that was the problem. Israel was exploiting their workers. What was the solution? But one of the solutions that had been given to Israel in the covenant of Sinai was Sabbath. Notice how the text of Isaiah continues. This is verse 13 of Isaiah 58. If you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways, serving your own interests, or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of your ancestor Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." The tradition of Sabbath in Israel was intended to solve a problem. And we have forgotten the problem. What was the problem? Well, at least in part, God has revealed through Isaiah that Sabbath laws were meant to protect the working poor from the tyranny of landowners. The wealthy in ancient Israel owned the land. Isaiah 58, 1-14, the reason we're here today is that this is the prophetic lectionary text uh, for, assigned for today. The lectionary gospel reading recounts the story of Jesus healing a crippled woman on the Sabbath and being criticized of breaking Sabbath law by Jewish leaders of his day. And this is a classic example of a generation having received a solution while having forgotten the problem it was meant to mitigate. 
In Jesus' day, the Jewish leaders interpreted the command of God to do no work on the Sabbath as indicating that God was somehow opposed to perspiration. The Sabbath became a sort of test of obedience for the rabbis, and its prescribed form resembled more of a punishment than it did mercy. Now, of course, they wouldn't have said it that way, but the Sabbath had been interpreted as a day to sit in the corner and think about what you've done. And when I was a kid, that was a punishment. They had determined exactly how far a person could walk before walk became work. They had determined what could and couldn't be cooked. They had determined what kind of care of livestock could and couldn't be given. And they had decided what kinds of ailments could and couldn't be remedied. In response to God's command not to work, the Jewish rabbis had spent generations trying to define the word work as specifically as possible. But in the days of Jesus, the Pharisees had misunderstood the Sabbath solution in ways similar to those of their ancestors in the days of Isaiah. Sabbath observance was not primarily a work of righteousness to be observed by pious people. Sabbath law was intended to protect laborers from their employers, or in the context of Israel, to protect protect slaves from the tyranny of their masters. Now, Sabbath laws were not the only laws in the covenant of Sinai which were intended to mitigate against abuses against laborers in Israel. Gleaning laws, tithing laws, leveret laws, remuneration laws, and so on. Did you know that in ancient Israel, a day laborer had to be paid at the end of every day? And if you withheld their pay even one day, you were in violation of the law. So there are a lot of laws meant to protect laborers, but the Sabbath laws were the heart and soul of God's mercy to those who labored for their living in the covenant of Sinai. And they covered far more than simply one day off every week. But that's where Sabbath law began, was one day off every week, and that's where we'll begin too. The covenant of Sinai gave two reasons for the command of God to rest every seventh day. The first, given in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, was that God created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. So anyone who thinks that they can work seven days a week without penalty to themselves think they're better than God, right? That's the logic of the law, right? God rested on the seventh day, so too should we, right? The second, and this is more pertinent to the context of Isaiah 58, is given in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. The whole passage is verses 12 through 15. This is what it says. Listen carefully to the language. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave or your ox or your donkey or or any of your livestock or the resident alien in your towns so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Why? Because you were slaves, and you know what it's like, so you must keep the Sabbath. Why was Israel to set aside every seventh day for rest? First, God rested on the seventh day, and as Jesus said, a servant is never better than his master or her master, right? But they were also to rest because they themselves had been slaves in Egypt. In other words, they knew what it was like to be exploited 
by greedy and tyrannical masters. And so God commanded that one day in seven was set aside as a day of rest. And God specified who that day of rest was for. It was not only for the landowners, but for their children, their male and female slaves, their animals, and even for foreigners living in their land. This was to be a day off for everybody. Now Israel in the days of Isaiah did not enforce this law. Neither do we. In Israel, the failure to observe the Sabbath had a disproportionate effect on laborers. They're the ones who really paid the price. And in our culture, the same is true. Most white-collar and professional workers get not only one, but two days off every week. But hourly workers and working-class poor folk, on the other hand, who often need to work two and three jobs just to make ends meet, routinely work seven days a week. It doesn't end there for us either. When I think of the hours worked by, the, by those who work in the fields of medicine and healthcare, law enforcement and law itself, I shudder to think of how God would evaluate us if he were to send a prophet like Isaiah today. Sabbath law required landowners to give all laborers the equivalent of one full day off with full pay. Pay, of course, in those days came in the form of water, food, and lodging for the most part. But those things were not allowed to be withheld on the Sabbath. This was Isaiah's accusation against Israel in his day. They were exploiting their workers every single week. But there was more. Sabbath law was not only weekly, it was yearly too. Every seventh year, Israel was to give their land a Sabbath rest. The covenant of Sinai said the following. This is, if you want the verse, Exodus chapter 23, verses 10 through 11. Exodus 23, verses 10 through 11. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the poor of your people may eat. Why? So that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the wild animals may eat. You shall do the same with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Every seventh year, Israel was neither to sow nor to reap. But instead, whatever grew naturally on the land was so that the poor of your people may eat. Now, who would benefit the most from not having to sow or reap for an entire year and still be allowed to be fed? Well, it would be the laborers who benefited most from that. It would be hard for the landowners. How many landowners let their land lie fallow and not plant any crops? But the laborers would certainly benefit. For that year, laborers had a year off, but they were not allowed to be put out of their master's houses or cut off from food during that year. The fact that Isaiah accused the Israelites of leaving the poor homeless may indicate that they were not observing this requirement either. After all, who wants to care for a laborer who's not working for an entire year? God saw this refusal as rebellion against God and against the covenant of Sinai. And there was more. Not only was the Sabbath every seventh day and every seventh year, but the Sabbath was also to be observed every seventh set of years. After seven of these seven-year cycles, you math experts out there can calculate the 49 years, right? After seven, years of, after seven of these seven-year cycles, God commanded Israel to commemorate a year of jubilee in the 50th year. This is what the covenant of Sinai said about that year in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 12. Leviticus 25, beginning in verse 8. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud. On the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of the atonement, 
You shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land, and you shall hallow the 50th year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property, and every one of you to your family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow or reap the aftergrowth or harvest the unpruned vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat only what the field itself produces. Now the text goes on. The laws with respect to the year of jubilee can be found in Leviticus 25, verses 13 through 55. But for the sake of time, I won't read it. But I will summarize what's to be found there. During the year of Jubilee, not only was the land again to lay fallow, so that would be two years in a row that year because it had followed after a Sabbath year, so they were to lie fallow, but the, any ancestral land that had been sold during the previous 49 years was to be returned to the original family. Can you imagine after 49 years if your family home was to be given back to you free of charge, even after you had sold it and benefited from it? But that was required in the law of Moses. All debts accrued during the previous 49 years were to be canceled. You can imagine they weren't giving out credit cards the year before the year of Jubilee. <laughs> all debts accrued during those years were to be canceled and all Hebrew slaves were to be released from servitude, no matter why they were in service. When Isaiah accused the Israelites of not letting the oppressed go free, he was most likely referring to their refusal to observe the Sabbath year of Jubilee and release all slaves. In Jesus' day, Sabbath law had become a matter of self-discipline, of self-denial, and of humility before God. As the Jewish people would say, it was a mitzvot. It was a, 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 a means of grace, as Wesley would have said. I don't know, what did Calvin say? Did he speak of means of grace, something like that? It was a way to prove your holiness before God. However, Jesus, by healing routinely on the Sabbath, revealed the misapprehension of the Jewish leaders of his day. Jesus revealed what Isaiah had revealed centuries before. God gave the Sabbath laws as protection for the weak from the powerful. Healing a person who had been enslaved by an illness for 18 years, which is that context, was not a breaking of Sabbath law, it was a fulfilling of it. At the heart of Sabbath law was the promise of God that the people of Israel could trust God to care for them while they gave their laborers periods of rest, even their animals. I once talked to a dairy farmer who told me, you can't stop milking a cow even a day or it will dry up. And yet God says, tough luck, trust me to keep the milking. And we say, no, that's not how it works. I think I'll milk the cow. Thank you. I'm okay with working, God. Therefore, God has understood in Isaiah's day the failure to keep Sabbath law as fundamentally a failure of faith, a failure of trusting God to keep God's own word. And so in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 20 through 22, God said this to Israel. And you might have asked this question when I said they weren't allowed to sow or reap for a year. Should you ask, God says through Moses, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? God says to them, I will order my blessing for you in the sixth year so that it will yield a crop for three years. 
When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating from the old crop until the ninth year when its produce comes in. You shall eat the old. I want to conclude our discussion by asking what we might learn today from the prophetic oracle of Isaiah to Israel. Let me suggest the following. As participants, not in the first covenant God made with Israel at Sinai, we didn't come to God through that covenant, but in the new covenant that God has made with all nations on earth in the person of Jesus. We're not bound to the covenant of Sinai as the people of Israel were. We've sworn loyalty not to a written covenant, but to a person, a living covenant. The core Christian confession is Jesus is Lord. What Jesus seems to have taught this to mean is not that we should simply discard the teachings of the covenant of Sinai. After all, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. The Apostle Paul has explained the relationship of Christians to Sinai well in his second epistle to the Christians of Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Paul said this, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, our competence is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. To my reading, Paul has suggested that in Christ, we are freed from the letter of the law, to live by the spirit of God. This is another way of saying that Christians now are free to fulfill the truest intent of the law, not merely its specific written requirements. And if the intent of Sabbath law, according to Isaiah and according to Jesus, was to protect the working poor from the greed of the wealthy, then we who follow Jesus should also embody in our business and in our interactions and in our behavior that same mercy. The question is, do we do this? For instance, if we are employers or managers, we might ask ourselves, Do we give a day off every week, full pay, and sufficient paid vacation to our employees that would be reflective of the mercy God required Israel to show? If we employ people at our homes, plumbers, electricians, nannies, whatever, landscapers, are we careful to show to them the same mercy ensconced in the Sabbath laws of Israel? Are we ourselves learning to trust God by honoring the Sabbath, does our weekly, yearly, and even decade-by-decade schedule embody a trust in God to care for us as we receive God's promises and obey God's instructions, even if doing as God has asked might cost us extra money, might put us or those we love at risk, or might earn the disdain of our neighbors, which is what Pastor Brian spoke about last week at our church. I worked in my first job for a man who was a Christian and ran a lumber yard. And when I first got married, I don't know if you've worked in retail, you know Saturday is like the golden day. Nobody gets Saturday off. You've got to work there like for decades before you get Saturdays off. But he took me into his office as soon as we got married, and he said he was a Christian, and he said, I'm going to give you Saturdays off for the first year of your marriage because in the law of Moses, God required 
a newly married couple to get a year off supported by the community. I can't do that for you, but I can give you Saturdays. And I thought, that's a man who gets the spirit of the law. And I received it. It was great. But as soon as that year was up, I was working 10 hours on Saturday. But still, may the spirit of God embolden you and incite your imagination too. As you go from these initial thoughts and are led into a robust understanding of the merciful gift of Sabbath that God has given to those who have ears to hear. And may you see that especially as a protection for those who labor and work and get no rest. Sabbath law was meant to protect them. We have kept the tradition, but we have forgotten the problem it was meant to address. May the people of God remember again and live as Jesus would have us live. Amen.